ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are back with uh, me, G Valentino Ball at uh, Embrace Boston, and you are now listening to the Good Trouble Podcast. And today, my guest is someone who's, you know, I'm not easy to impress when it comes to writing. I take writing very seriously. And this is someone who absolutely impressed me, not only with um, her skill as a writer, but um, her passion um, for for protecting, loving, and uplifting uh, Black folks. And I think that I am I'm super excited to have this conversation today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Janae Osterheld. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for such a beautiful introduction. And I'm doing well. How can I not be? I'm, I'm here with you. Oh, see, this this is this is what smooth smooth players talk. This is that's the, that's a player talk. She said, like, "How how could I not be?" You know what I'm saying? I'm, this is how she she draws you in, and then she tell you tell her all of your life story, and then she writes it. This is all I, I can see how this works. But I'm interviewing you today. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you. Oh, uh, so let's start. Let's start at the beginning. I know that you know as in your role as um. You you came into your role at um at Boston at the Boston Globe as a culture writer a few years ago, but I know that that's not the first the beginning of your your writing career. Um, where did you start? Um, well, I mean, I started as an intern, like most of us do. Um, mm-hmm. and I was I was in the Knight Ritter rotating internship program, so I was at the Kansas City Star at um, the Contra Costa Times, and I was in Minneapolis at the Pioneer Press. Um, and then a Eventually, the Kansas City Star actually hired me because their music critic kind of, you know, I really want to give a shout out to what allyship looks like because Timothy Finn was like the longtime music critic at the Kansas City Star. And he Mm -hmm. was like, we need her. He was like, I need her. Like, we need her on our staff. I need her to do the rest of the work that I can't do, that I don't have the capacity to to do. And this is work he had been doing for like many, many years. He could do it, but Mm -hmm. he made the plea that like, a young black woman should be covering um, hip hop and R&B and that, you know, he would cover, he would continue to cover all the other things. And what I couldn't cover, he would and vice versa. Like I did cover sync for him and Avril mm-hmm. Lavigne and some other things that weren't hip hop, but he really kind of made the plea that I should have space there and that they should find the money to hire me. Wow. And they, so, I mean, and they did. That, I mean, that's incredible. And that's the, those are beautiful things. Cause I feel like, that is what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to a space where we can rely on one another and help each other out. So to hear that somebody kind of recognized your talent and uplifted you and pulled you up. He really did. When I was an intern, he um, he gave me a lot of pieces that I think I otherwise wouldn't have got. Like, I don't think editors would have given me those pieces as an intern. Mm-hmm. And then when I left, he said, look, I know you have two more other, you know, two other internships on the plate. But he was like, if you could just do music reviews and just keep your name over here. He was like, I'm trying to do something, trust me. So mm-hmm. I just kept writing for him even when I was interning other places. And he really, I mean, he, there were other people who signed on of course, but I, I definitely want to give him credit for sort of recognizing and amplifying and giving me the stories that allowed top line leadership to see my byline. Mm-hmm. Well, well, so even before that, because I was talking about going to the beginning, how does the HBCU grad make her way to Kansas City? 
Because you were at Winston, no, I'm sorry, Norfolk, Norfolk State University. State. Norfolk State. I'm about to say Winston Salem and start a fight. No, like Norfolk State. Fights over here. Norfolk State University. Our women's basketball team is currently in the MEAC doing the thing. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, how did how, how did you get from from there? Uh, from Norfolk State, and where? And even before that, did your did your passion for writing and, and journalism kind of start at Norfolk State, or did it start before then? No, I. I've been wanting to write since I was a little kid, literally since I was a little kid. Um, I was an early reader, like one of those super nerd kids. Um, I was in all the book clubs and mm -hmm. we were lucky because we were the kids who had those book fairs with the stickers and all of the, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. scholastic book fairs. I did all the library summer reading challenges where you got free Pizza Hut and all the stuff. Um sweet pickles, like literally all of that stuff. So I, I really loved- But you reading. were reading for snacks is what you're telling me. I was, I was, I was reading for snacks. I was reading for snacks and stickers and prizes. Um, but you know, whenever you, <clears throat> I feel like when you have that early love of reading, you ultimately develop an early love of writing. Yeah. So it started out with really silly poems about peanut butter sandwiches and random things like that. Um, and then it developed into much, you know, like short stories and you know all types of I was always looking my also part of this I don't give my dad enough credit but mm -hmm. my dad hated that I asked a lot of questions like hated it um he was a young father mm -hmm. and he worked at the graveyard shift and he just didn't he wouldn't even bother like you know like 21 when I was like five so he's just like mm -hmm. leave me alone <laughs> like and he would so be like get, I'm trying to get some, get, go over there and, and look, sleep and leave yeah me. I'm trying to sleep so I can pay bills but he would literally like say go get the dictionary and and learn some words or he bought that's back when encyclopedias were big in the mm -hmm. 80s um and he bought like those encyclopedias and was like go read so I think part of it is also him kind of saying go write definitions from the the dictionary and go learn something from the encyclopedia almost giving me homework but thinking it was punishment like go go learn something and write it out and come tell me about it later <laughs> go find the answer so in an uh, effort to get some sleep this man has set you on a pathway to your literally <laughs> your developing career. me into a journalist and I it's funny I don't really tell that story often but I really should give him credit for that um so I think part of it was that also you know I loved photography I was lucky enough to be, you know, in elementary school around the time Source Magazine was becoming mm -hmm. a thing. And um, so I, I could never take away the impact that somebody like Dream Hampton had on me. And then, you know, as high school came, that would become like Danielle Smith and uh, even Khadijah James, the fictional character Khadijah James, like mm -hmm. seeing a Black woman run Flavor Magazine. Like I aspired to that and wanted to be that so badly. And I also wanted to be a photographer. So I was always taking pictures and telling stories. So I had this very luxurious dream of myself being this photojournalist who would take pictures and write and live in New York and have a cool loft and, you know, write for all the hip hop magazines. Mm. Um, that's not well, what happened, you, but, but it was my dream. <laughs> well, you got pretty close. I mean, you're about 300 miles off, but you but all that other stuff seems to be in place. You are like when when I think of culture and the culture writing at the Globe, I you know I'm so happy that you're there because I think that you you really um, you have a unique talent to kind of bring your personal experience 
and melding it with kind of the things that are in the moment. So with the beautiful resistance, and we'll talk about that more, but it, with that that whole series, I feel like it's so essential, but I don't think anybody else but you could do it. You know what I mean? Oh, like, it, I think it's one of those things that's uniquely personal, um, but it's also so informational and so necessary that it's it's like, and you and it's, and it's yours without being obviously yours. You know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Part of it is, and I, I realize I owe you an answer to the, how did I get from Norfolk State to Kansas City? Mm -hmm. We'll get um, back to that. But part of it is, has to do with kind of not seeing yourself enough in media. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was at Norfolk State, that's kind of when I had this professor, uh, Mr. Koontz, who's now become Dr. Koontz, but at that time he was Mr. Koontz. And he... Uh, he was like, you know, you keep chasing all these magazines. He's like, do you have the support to just, you know, go live in New York or LA? He's like, do you have that support? He's like, you know, they're not going to give you insurance. They're not going to, mm -hmm. you're going to be on your own. And I did not have the family support for that. I love my parents very much. They did their best they could for young parents, but I really was kind of very much on my own. Um, so I didn't have any internships throughout undergrad and, um, I didn't have the connections that I feel like a lot of people need to get an internship at one of the big brand magazines. And I didn't have the money or support to just parachute myself into New York or LA the way we hear these romantic stories of people being like, oh, I moved. Like, I just did not have mm -hmm. that type of connect network. Um, like I had a ton of friends in New York, but none of them really could let me stay. I just didn't have it. Um, mm -hmm. And I met this man, Reginald Stewart, at this um, job fair, the Spirit of Diversity, that used to go on in Detroit. And he was the corporate headhunter for Knight Ritter, which at the time was the second largest publishing company in newspapers. And he said, look, it's a long shot because you haven't had any internships. And he was like, we typically only, you know, take prior people with internship experience, which is a story that us black and brown folks hear a lot in college. It's like, oh, you don't have internship experience. And it's like, no, we, we're working. We're trying to pay our way. Pay our yeah, way who could afford to just work for you for 30, 20, 30, 40 hours yes. and not get cash? And like, not get you have cash. To be, you have to be and then also new, move. New space, new space and move, yes. So um, he, he loved my clips and he was mm -hmm. like, he wrote on it raw talent. I also had put a poem on top of my clips because I hosted open mic in college and he loved that. He was like, no one's ever done this before. And he said, look, I want you to apply to this program. We only choose eight graduating seniors every year across the country. He was like, you might not get it. He was like, cause you just don't have what we normally look for. He was like, but you do have raw talent. And he said, you can't teach this. He said, so I want you to apply. So I applied to that and a whole bunch of other places. I even applied for an internship at some place like called Lima, Ohio. Like I was just shooting my shot. I did not want to continue. Mm -hmm. I was working at J. Crew in the mall. I was like, I cannot mm -hmm. keep working in the mall. Like I, I did not go to college to do this. And I love fashion, but it was just like, I want to, <laughs> I want to be a journalist. So I um, became one of those eight. I, I managed to, to secure a slot. And that's how I ended up in Kansas City and in uh, the Bay Area when I worked for the Contra Costa Times and ultimately in Minneapolis where I was there too. And after that year, 
um, and with the, the love of Timothy Finn and Mary Lou Nolan, I was able to get that first crack in Kansas City. And it wasn't where I wanted to live, like super East Coast snobbery. I was just like, why would I move out there? But I also mm -hmm. didn't want to work in the mall. So I was like, let's go, let's do it. <laughs> Kansas I, was, City I, I was covering music, fashion, and culture. So it was like, why would I even complain? Like, I wasn't making much money. I was literally making, I think, like $30,000 flat. Um, but I did what needed to be done. And um, it set me on the path that I currently am on now. So that's kind of the very long way of how I got from um, the DMV area where I'm from to Norfolk, where I went to my HBCU to Kansas City um, to now. <laughs> yeah, but then you... After you wrapped, you were in Minnesota before you came here, right? Was that the last uh, Missouri. I was in Missouri before I came here. Okay. Um, I had, I got restless. Um, I love music. Mm -hmm. I love hip hop. I love the culture. But I will say living in a smaller city, um, that's not totally different from Boston. It's like, you know, mm -hmm. there's lots of Black people there, but it's deeply segregated and there's lots of racial uh you know, a racial wealth gap and just mm -hmm. people existing in silos. I feel like a lot of the Black people get to know each other and it becomes hard to sort of do your job and also not be um, compromised ethically because it's like people, you know, they consider you their friends. So they want from you, especially when you're covering music. It's just like, you know, cover my, here's my mixtape. Here's my, this, here's my, that. And, um, that became exhausting. And I also was a nightlife columnist, which was great for a very long time. Cause it's like, I was broke and I was getting paid to basically go out and write about where you go get brunch, the five, you know, cheap date places, mm -hmm. things like that. But I, you know, I was hitting my mid 20, mid to late twenties and I was getting a little exhausted and I wanted to go to concerts and have fun versus going to concerts and having to have that critical eye and keep track of the playlist and keep track of the samples and who's who's guesting and some people love that forever mm -hmm. and I still love going to concerts I just didn't want to write it anymore and as I was writing I noticed my writing was starting to shift it's like if I was writing about a new black owned club and I saw something you know violent or I saw something sexist it started creeping into my work like why you know why does this exist why is this happening this way um or I refused to go to the R. Kelly concert when he was performing. And I was just like, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not going to this. And then writing about how I'm not going, you know, I will not mm -hmm. support this. Um, so it started becoming less about music and more about um, society and community and injustice. So that's kind of where our publisher at the time was like, have you thought, you know, what does it look like if we transition you out of music in nightlife and more into culture writing and a lifestyle column where you can, it almost kind of allowed me to grow up a little bit or just become who I was ultimately becoming, um, which I think set me, it also happened to coincide or with like right around when Obama was running for president, which squarely runs us right into where Black Lives Matter become, you know, mm -hmm. is born. So all of it was happening at the same time. And I think all of that was kind of informing and shaping who I was, which was taking me more and more out of the music critic role and more into the 
you know, role of a, a lifestyle columnist, a culture columnist, um, which to me is still very hip hop. I mean, that is what the that is what the MC does. That is what the lyricist does. That is his his or her or their role is to kind of tell our stories, to witness us, and um, you know, call us to action, call us to be better. Um, and I mean, I guess deep down inside, since I can't rap, that was my way of being a rapper. So I was like, I don't want, I don't want to cover music anymore. I want to be the MC this way. <laughs> okay. So before you came to Boston, what were you thinking? What were your impressions of Boston? What were your thoughts of Boston before you came? So growing up in um, Northern Virginia, outside of DC, and then eventually in the 757, you know, we have this deep affinity. There's a relationship between New York and the DC area in New York and Virginia, oh, yeah. which ultimately lends itself to the New York Boston beef. So mm -hmm. in my mind growing up, it was like, ill Boston, ill the Celtics. Yep, you know, <laughs> ain't nobody trying to hear that. Uh -huh. And then I, I went to Harvard um, on a Neiman Fellowship 2016, 2017. And um. You know, obviously, I knew beautiful things that happened here. As a writer, you never can overlook the fact that Source Magazine was born here. So, mm -hmm. and if you're a writer, you know who Dart is. So it's like, I knew who Dart Adams was before I ever moved here, before I ever came to Harvard. We had followed each other on Twitter for many, many years. Mm -hmm. um, he was like our early supporter of a blog I used to do with Jazzeray Allen Lord and Kustu, who are huge uh, sneaker journalists. And we, the three of us had a blog called Nerd Like, and then we all went to Kicks on Fire together and Dart followed all of us at that time. So we were all, you know, well-versed with each other. So when I went to Harvard Jazz, he was like, Dart's there. Don't forget Dart's there. Like, look him up or whatever. And I let Dart know I was coming. And of course he did what Dart does. It's like, yo, I'm gonna show you all about everything in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard not to appreciate and fall in love with Boston when you get to experience it through his lens. Mm -hmm. And he took me on a Black Boston tour, showed me like, you know, where New Edition did their thing, where, you know, Guru at OG, like the whole, he just gave me the whole thing. It's like, this is where Martin Luther King lives, this is where Harry Tubman was, just the whole entire thing. It's why I recreated it when I did A Beautiful Resistance. I knew I was calling Dart because I was like, oh, mm -hmm. Dart took me on his tour when I was at Harvard before I ever even moved to Boston. And we, I want people to see that because if you see Boston, as with him as your tour guide, you're going to fall in love. You you just cannot deny the power that exists here. Mm. Um, so I think I was lucky in that way when the Boston Globe slid in my DMs about like maybe coming here because I mm. feel like before that, had I not gone to Harvard and been able to see a little bit of what the city has to offer, I might would have been a lot less receptive. But because mm. I had had that fellowship at Harvard and had been there a year had hung out with Dart, had seen the city, um, and had had a couple of other experiences that sort of was like, you know what, there is racism here. I've seen it, I experienced it, but there was lots of racism in Kansas City too. I was getting literally my life threatened semi-regularly there. So it, uh, I was yeah. like- oh, oh, the stuff you were writing? Yes. Yeah. And- um, Boston was so much closer to home and I had been wanting to come home for like 20 years. So I was like, I can 
get to DC, I can get to VA so much easier than being landlocked in the middle of the country. And also I grew up near water. I love being near oceans. And um, so I just felt like it was calling to me. I also felt I'm a spirit driven person. So, you know, when Jason Tui slid in my DMs and was like, can we have a conversation? And um, he had read my work and he didn't even have a role for a columnist. He was just like, I, you know, would, if, would you be considered willing to come here? Like I'll build the role. And um, he flew me out to meet everybody. And in my spirit, I just felt like I was supposed to be here. It was like something in my spirit said, do this. This is like, mm-hmm. this is where you take your next steps. Um, and I think that's why I went so hard and hit the ground running when I got here, because I just felt like uh, something bigger than me was at play. And I was like in that purpose, in that bag, like, let's follow this feeling and do what the people need, which is ultimately like what I need. So it's like God calling me to my purpose. Well, it's interesting because once you started to work at the Globe, there became it. This there was a transition from yo, did you see this article in the Grove? It was really good, da 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 And it was something that you would write to, did you see what Janae said? Like, so there, <laughs> there's, there was a turn where your, where your words really got associated with you and just, you know, uplifting you. And it wasn't one of those things where you were going out and kind of trying to be in everyone's um, circles or anything like that. It was like really around the quality of the work. And I think that, you know, it seems like from what you're telling me about the photojournalism things that you wanted to do in the past, it almost seems like all that stuff that you did before was foundational to, to putting together a beautiful resistance. Tell us about kind of that, that I, um, that journey of creating that, um, that series. Oh, a hundred percent. I just feel like every move was kind of building me to the next move. Um, Mm -hmm. and a beautiful resistance I think ultimately it's something I probably always in the back of my mind wanted to see happen, but it wasn't until I went to George Floyd's funeral. And um, I think being in Minneapolis, not just for the funeral, but also during, you know, the very early chapters of the pandemic, when we were still in isolation before vaccines, like when Mm. things were still just very empty, I remember what, you know, I was an intern. I started my career in that city. I remember what that city looked like. I I know what it's supposed to feel like. So to get off of a plane um, fully masked up and out into an empty airport and have my phone, like having almost Amber alert sounds alerting me that I needed to get to wherever I was going, basically saying there would be no cab, there would be no Uber, there would be no Lyft, there would be no bus after 7 p.m. Like you would just be stuck. Mm-hmm. So it's like I had to hurry up and get to a hotel. The hotel had no service. Like you could only get food between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. Um, everything was boarded up. Restaurants were closed. It was just very hard to get food. It did not look like a city. It did not look like a city in America. Um And then going to that Cup Foods where he was lynched and just being out there with people and seeing all the sunflowers, there were sunflowers everywhere. And um, I think, and there was art, you know, the artists were on the ground creating so much. And just, I think that is really what reminded me of why I fell in love with hip hop in the first place and why it matters because it's like, at our darkest moments, 
it was the graffiti artist and um, the music kind of lending themselves to our healing and also to awareness of what's happening, to witnessing. There was the photographers were out there taking pictures um, and seeing those sunflowers, even though they weren't roses, but seeing those sunflowers laid out everywhere on concrete, you know, automatically made me think about Tupac and the rose that grew from concrete and mm-hmm. going to the funeral, covering the stories, coming back 72 hours later with very little food in my system because you just couldn't get food. Um, I told my my editor, I was like, I, I'm going to cover all this stuff. I'm going to continue to write about injustice and, and, you know, hold people accountable, but we need a space for our beauty. We need a space for our art. We need a space um, for resistance as love and resistance as joy, because I was so exhausted from years and years and years of covering us um, as the underbelly, as the dead, as the brutalized, as the suffering. And yes, that's part of our story in America, but it can't be what defines us. And in media, it is what defines us. So we start to consume that idea of ourselves as less than, as half dead. And um, even though I was proud of my work, I was like, I, as a columnist, have control over my real estate. I'm like a curator at a museum. And I was like, how am I using my real estate? Like I, Yes, I need to to do the columns, but also Renee and Adrian are right there doing that work and doing it beautifully and have been doing it for decades. I was like, how can I add value? And I remember this class I took at Harvard, Sarah Lewis class, Vision and Justice. And you know, we talked a lot about beauty in her class and how beauty becomes radical when you're denied, you know? And I was like, I want to show us in our beauty. I want to show us in our joy. I want to tell stories of us without us having to reach these pinnacles of extreme excellence. Like mm-hmm. you got to be LeBron James or um, Trayvon Martin in our news cycles. Mm-hmm. You know, there's we, we're not allowed multitudes. We're not allowed nuance. We're not allowed everyday living the way that we tell the stories of white folks, which is to give them nuance. Cause I'm not saying white people don't suffer and they're not poor cause there are suffering poor white people. But the difference is they get to have, they get to have and witness and see themselves as so much more and without having to be extremely excellent. They get to be the farmer with the biggest squash in the garden. And that gets to be a beautiful story. And we, we don't get those things. So that's kind of where a beautiful resistance comes together. That's why they're, it's a mixtape. You know, you get a, a 10 minute film, you get a 1500 word long form deep dive story that's broader than the, than the film that has many voices. You get a Q and A that's very digestible. You get the Instagram post that five to seven days a week. You get a playlist because I love music. Um, there's these multiple access points. So no matter what you like, there's something for you that can hopefully draw you in. Um, it's, it's a world and it's a world for us through our lens. And because we are black and we are love, nothing we do is solely just for us. We, we always kind of help lift others. So we share space, you know, with the LGBTQ plus community, with the, the Latino community, with the Asian community, um, we are always centered, but we share that space. Mm. And um, that's, you know, I feel like all of that 
is kind of just stuff I learned from other journalists, from other storytellers, from James Baldwin, from Toni Morrison, but also from hip hop. And, you know, that's, that's always been part of our culture and part of our legacy and part of our lineage. I, one of the things I think is beautiful about a beautiful resistance is all like the the multiple mediums that you the um the mediums that you use like the just like you said the the playlist the the film all those different pieces and I think that what what strike strikes me and what I think makes the the series so special is that it is storytelling for the world that we're in today like it is it uses every platform necessary to get the word out and it's all interconnected and it's like it's, it is like you said like a mixtape it feels like that now thinking of it in that space it makes even more sense and it makes it it feels even you know bigger than than what you've already done I only I also see from seeing that like you are a documentary filmmaker in the making and I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for the big announcement of, of <laughs> doing your documentary you know, I'm still getting used to, you know, claiming my space as a filmmaker. Uh, I try to spend a lot of time bolstering uh, Cheney, who is my videographer slash co-director. I don't even take director's credit, even though Cheney will always say, that's what you're doing. Like, I, I pick the people, I pick the place where we're going and times and all of that and storyboard. Um, but I you know, that's his dream. His dream is to be a filmmaker. So I like to, to amplify him and amplify what he brings to the table. When I bring him these stories and I tell him, here's who I want to interview. Here's where I want us to be. Here's what I wanted to feel like. And he gets what I'm saying mm -hmm. and makes it happen. And, um, I very purposefully chose young black and brown folks from our community. Um, you know, I've had snaps by cat and Damian Mejia and, Cheney's become my ultimate partner, but I've had, you know, multiple brown folks from the community who are young behind the camera to help tell these stories um, because it's very much about trying to remove the white gaze. And um, first season, Caitlin was my director and she is white, but she was an amazing ally. But we, even when we went in it together, we went into it knowing that she would not stay on it forever. It was more so, it was early pandemic. We didn't have the resources and she was like, I'm going to help you get you as far as I can help get you. And she did an amazing job and really listened to me as an editor. Um, so it, it's it's a lot of taking that space filmmaker you are you but you are a director like if you're if what you just described to me is directing that is so when Cheney is telling you that you he's they're not being wrong with that that yeah but, but we do it together we do it together and um it's just I do think one day we'll probably do something longer but really I just want to see what him and Keeks do because they do a lot of sports filmmaking and I want to see kind of where they go next and how this helps grow them um but I'm sure there's going to be, I'm sure I I have something longer in me coming. Um, I know a lot of people keep asking about a podcast and we were close to securing one last year, um, mm -hmm. but it just didn't happen. So maybe, maybe in the future, but uh, it's always going to be black and it's always going to be storytelling and witnessing with love. <laughs> well, listen, um, you know, if you're in the market for a co-host, you know, you know, holler at me. I'll, I'll, I'll make the jump. Look, <laughs> we could do this. Sorry, Amari. 
<laughs> uh, listen, Imari is doing a, a podcast with BBJ, so he, he'll understand <laughs> if I make a make a run for it. Um, but you know, I think that the thing when I keep thinking about a, a beautiful resistance, I also think that is the other thing that I love about it is that you're doing those stories here in Boston. And I think it almost feels even more powerful when those stories are coming from a place where there is either the the intentional erasure of Black folks or the incidental erasure of Black folks. And I think that, you know, like the piece you just did on um, on Robin, uh, Rob Eugene and his wife, um, Mika- is it Michaela? Carmella. Carmella, I'm sorry. Just, I'm up here giving the wrong name. Listen, Rob, I'm sorry. That was, that was my mistake. Don't listen, you know. Um, <laughs> but the piece that you did about them and their family, I think was was something that was even more special kind of because it was from here because people don't think that exists here in a no, some strange they, way. They don't think, you know, Rob and Hermela, um, Amari and Miriam, yeah. uh, and Crystal uh, exist. They don't, they don't think Dart exists. They don't think uh, OJ exists. It's, it's really interesting, mm-hmm. the erasure or, you know, the thing that happens when you're someone like me who's not from Boston who moves here and, and other Black people are like, why would you go there? I'm like, it's the home of new edition. Like, but, 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 but I'm just like, you know, blackness is here and it's here in big numbers. Um, so I always knew Boston would be much like black folks are centered in a beautiful resistance. I knew Boston would always be centered and I'm always going to, I'm always going to expand beyond. Like we've had people in Vermont and, uh, we had Tani Chapman out of Maryland because um, I'm from the DMV. So I'm always going to like reach back where I'm from and have people um, next season. We have Say Adams, uh, okay. you know, who's like a hip hop legend, an arts legend. Um, and he's from New York. He's a New Yorker, but he had an art show in Boston. So even when we feature people who aren't local to the Northeast. The majority of the season will always be Northeast. The majority of the story will always be the Northeast. It will always be Boston, but we'll bring in other people from other places because I just believe in telling stories of Black folks and Black joy and Black um, liberation across the world. Um, but for me, rooting us here and making sure we're centered, like if a, a season is seven episodes, making sure like four of them are out of the Northeast and at least three are Boston is important to me. Um, if I have an episode that is, you know, someone like say, then the Q&A is going to be someone out of here, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I never like when people come into a place and think they're above the place or better than the place Mm -hmm. when I come into a place especially if I'm moving here I'm coming to it knowing that home is where I'm from but it's also where I'm at Mm. and um so I'm not covering the community I'm in community with the community it's why I do the events at the museum of science like I don't want to just be a byline I want you to know I'm a person and I, I love you and I want us to share a stage together I want us to have a space that is free to come and be beautiful and joyous together um I am a Celtics fan now and as you should be thank I, you for coming I, I don't on. know how it happened <laughs> 
I, I mean, I will say I've always loved Rajon Rondo. I think he's a scientist. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it was Rondo was planting the seeds in me a long time ago, possibly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I started really watching the games in 2016-17 when I was at uh, Harvard. And I just kind of kept watching. And mm-hmm. then, you know, Smart and Tatum... And Jalen, I really feel like make you kind of love the Celtics. You, it's it's mm-hmm. not a situation with like, like with Rondo, I loved Rondo. I didn't necessarily love yeah. the Celtics. I just liked the way Rondo played. I was like, this guy is so, he's on a different intellectual plane. Mm-hmm. But it's almost impossible to not like this team. It's the first Celtics team I've ever seen um, where the country at large ev- normally wants the Celtics to just, they just hate us. Oh, but yeah. Now, more and more, you're hearing people, even if they're not Celtics fans, they fuck with us. And mm-hmm. I feel like the Celtics are much like the city of Boston. It's like they're becoming a more um, familial base and like a mm-hmm. community driven base. And that's like Boston is becoming something different, something better than it ever was. It's looking at what it once was and kind of divorcing itself from those patriarchal ways, those, you know, fake facade of progress and getting into the nitty gritty work of what progress and family and forward looking liberation looks like. And I think all those things are happening in tandem. I think, you know, the Boston Globe is in a place of transition and moving forward. The city of Boston is in a transitional place and so are the Celtics. So it's been really interesting to watch all these kind of reflections of one another. Anyway, that's a long way of me saying I'm a Bostonian, you know, I'm from the DC area. I'm from Virginia. I'm always going to rep where I'm from and love where I'm from, but I am also very much a Bostonian. I was a South Ender for five years, but pro-Black just informed me that I am now a Roxbury girl because I live in Roxbury. So he, okay. he let me know I need to rep Roxbury very hard so i'm trying to shake off my south ender ways <laughs> you, know, you know what they say the blacker the raxberry <laughs> oh god oh uh, the thing the, so when you were talking about the whole idea of being a bostonian one of the things i also appreciate about you is that you are you know, I actually see you outside in community so when you say you're in community i see you outside i'm wherever i'm at more often than not, you pop up or like, I'll just run into you in the world. And I think that having that approach um, is essential to particularly in your space as a, as a culture writer, kind of being connected. And I know, and because you're outside and I see you around, what are you thinking about the the city? How has it changed since you've been here? Or do you feel like very hopeful for the future in terms of um, space for artists? Just Just all over, what are you thinking about Boston? I mean, I feel incredibly hopeful. Um, I think we're really embracing what it means to recognize the people of Boston Mm -hmm. versus the institution of Boston. Um, You know, I always say Boston is not a white city. It's It's a city that's been complicit in white supremacy. It's a city that's been complicit in the image of whiteness. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is how we got to a space where people don't understand that this is a city made up primarily of POC. It's it's more people of color than not, um, especially once you put the Latino and Black community together. That's the lion's share of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, I want us to get to a place where the city looks like that because when people come in, you know, they're not going to Mattapan, they're not going to Roxbury, they're not going to Hyde Park, um, not going to Dorchester. A lot of times they're, they're downtown, they're visitors. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, oh, this is so white. Or they go to a game and they're so white. And I'm like, but did you actually go to the city? Like, were, were you in the community? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's why places like Hugh are so important because we need to have spaces that are very intentionally welcoming, inclusive, and centering Black life that are in the spaces that people wouldn't expect it to be. You mm -hmm. know, lots of people come through Copley, you know, yes. from all over the world and all over the city. So I want them to walk into Hugh and be like, oh, shit, sorry. But, um, you know, oh, snap. Like, you know, <laughs> look at all this melanin. You know, mm -hmm. it's literally called Hugh. Yes. You know, I love that Nia is having her supper club at Big Night Live. I love that Silk R&B is happening at Big Night Live. And I don't, I don't want anyone to get it twisted. Of course, we need to be building up Nubian Square. We need to be building up um, Mattapan and Brockton and Hyde Park and, and Blue Hill Ave. That is essential. Like we have to respect, recognize, and understand the power of our own communities. And I'm always going to champion that, but I also don't want us to be pushed into silos. Like I don't mm -hmm. want people to come to downtown and not know that Estella is there and not know that Zaz is in city hall. Like mm -hmm. you have to engage with us. This city is ours too. So it's important that as much as we build up our communities and our neighborhoods and protect them, that we aren't letting the the, the wealthiest and most powerful spaces of the city be whitewashed well, because that's, very, that's, oh, sorry, that's how the imaging that's how the imaging became white yes and and that's very much the the thought process that we had behind the whole idea of putting the 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 embrace in um in the center of the city like it wasn't that we didn't think that it was worthy or it made sense to go into Roxbury Dorchester Manapan like it very easily could have gone into those places but you know, when you put a symbol of Black people, Black love, right on a freedom trail where everybody's learning the story of America, you're, you know, you're getting the little Easter egg in your mind that, you know, Black people are at the genesis of the story of America. So, like, for me, that was super important. Once, you know, once we, once I came on to Embrace Boston and was learning, like, okay, because, like, I understood why people were like, why didn't you put it in the Mattapan? Or why you didn't put it in Roxbury? But I also understood it's it's a statement it's the claiming it, it, keeps us, it, it keeps us it keeps us honest it keeps yes. us true to the history and it's also the claiming taking and making of space like yes. that space is ours like we should always be claiming space space for story space for naming space for lineage space to say this is our past present and future in bigger spaces like we should not be relegated to one or two neighborhoods. This entire city is all of ours. And to just, to not acknowledge that, the embrace is a call to action. It should exist right where it is in the common. It, because not only is it the common where we all go, it should be commonplace to mm -hmm. celebrate black love and love as the ultimate language of liberation. And so much hoopla 
and just backlash and just petty, childish, trite commentary uh, got all up in the mix and people totally overlooked like the many black names that exist Mm -hmm. around embrace of people freedom fighters here in boston many of which are still alive and it's like you should know that like you should celebrate that and it can't just be black people celebrating that like i always say you know i created a beautiful resistance for us and it's by us but i am very aware that the globe's readership is majority white And I want them to be reading about us, engaging with us, learning, respecting, and honoring us the same way we've had to learn, respect, honor, and delight in them. It's Mm -hmm. like, that is essential. Like, this is what, when we go to our art museum, it's why all of us are there, like learning about this art is like, this is how bridges are built. This is how we learn that our humanity is bound up in each other. So when embrace is there in the comment, it's like embrace, what does it mean to embrace yourself? Have you been held lately? Have you held others? How are you loving? Because that's how we gonna get free. And that's not just for us, that's for everybody. We get it twisted in thinking that images of blackness are just for us. When we think that way, it allows them to continue to devalue us. Mm-hmm. Images of blackness as beautiful and power is for everybody. Everyone needs to be taking that in and enjoying that and and, and loving that and sitting with that. Because when only one group of people is universally applauded, loved, respected, and learned about, it's how you get in this place of oppression. It's how you get it. That's why when they go to war, they take the first thing they do is burn people's art, books, and photos. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So for, it, it's why we're at war with schools right now teaching the truth because when you when you can deny people their truth take away their art take away their books you could just make them over into whatever you want so the idea that the embrace should should not be in the common is insane yeah i, I mean in, in the well idea- i don't want to say it's insane i understand why people want it in their neighborhoods but i want to say it's just it doesn't help us move forward yeah i mean i'm and trust me i agree with you because also part of our thought process as we're looking towards building the Embrace Center is, and that's going to be in Roxbury, is being everywhere. The entire city belongs to all of us. All of and us. I th- and everybody should be able to see that. And I, and I think about it, you know, I also think about it from a super fat boy perspective. So when I was a kid, you know, I'm going over all my friends' house. So if, I, if I'm going over my Jamaican friend's house, I'm over there eating oxtail and I'm getting connected and learning and understanding about how their family works. And that's allowed me to see the humanity in them, even within our community, so that when somebody says, oh, Jamaicans always do this. No, that's not true. Because I was with some Jamaicans and that's not how they operate. Like you, you by being close and connecting through the arts, through food, through culture, it allows us to see each other. It allows us to really understand who each other is, and it doesn't allow us to um to sit in uh, in the lies that are that get told, you know, about each other. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, you know, for us on our side with with the embrace, it was also about understanding the historic significance of putting the 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 monument there. Also, that neighborhood, you know, that was the first black neighborhood in the city. So here well, we are, and giving people a place. So you don't feel like you have to stay around the way. 
Like, and not just the first black neighborhood, on. but the mm-hmm. first place where free black formerly enslaved people could have homes. Yes. And it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, we forget about that. It's like, when we say first black neighborhood, sometimes we forget like how radical it is. It's like, yo, this is, you know, Beacon Hill is one of the places where the first uh, freed folks that were black were able to actually come and live. And like most places, whenever, you know, we got abundant and beautiful and concentratedly black and they saw how beautiful our neighborhoods were, they took them and erased us and did all the things they always do. So it's like also a reclaiming of space and you Mm -hmm. don't have to stay around the way. You can go, one of the things I liked about living in the South End when I was there was like, yes, see me, see me in my bonnet walking my dog. All this black culture. (laughs) (laughs) In the bonnet walking the dog. Oh, Look, it's 7 a.m. I'm not taking off my bonnet. I, I understand. I saw that little meme that said, if I see you in public in your bonnet, I'm taking you off the wife list. It's 7 a.m. If you see me walking my dog at 7 a.m. in my bonnet and that take me off the wife list, you is not on my husband list. <laughs> <laughs> what? But we do. We belong everywhere. We belong everywhere. Like, um, it saddens me. And this doesn't just happen in Boston. It happens in, in cities all over the country. Sometimes Black people grow up generationally thinking they can't go places you know oh I don't I've never gone to Newberry Street I've never gone to you know you mm-hmm. hear these things from people and it, people are like oh I've never heard that yes you like I I know people who just don't you know there are people who grew up in Brockton that never came to Boston until they went to college like there <laughs> and that exists in cities all over the nation where it's like we have been taught that we live in a bubble and we don't go outside of our bubble and that's Uh, that's stifling like even if you ultimately go back home and decide that's where you want to be you should understand you're free to be yourself wherever and and so yeah I don't I love that embraces in the common and I love that we're doing the embrace center in Nubian and you know I'm excited about what uh John Borders is going to be doing with the city of Boston because I know he's going to he's going to demand that people are, it's not just tourism of Boston and what we consider Boston proper. It's like, how do we bring people to Hyde Park? How do we bring them to Dorchester? How do we bring them, you know, to all over the city to really appreciate all we have to offer, not just Fenway and Faneuil Hall? Yeah, exactly. And I think that, and that is to me, the beauty beauty of Boston is the diversity in the, the, in all the offerings that that in every section of the city, like I I grew up in Dorchester, which is actually the best part of the city. But <laughs> um, the beautiful part about Dorchester is that while it's the largest section of the city, it is also the most diverse. It's got people from Southeast Asia. It's got people from um, from the Caribbean. It's got people from down south. Like it's every everything you want in Boston, you can get in Dorchester. And I think that. The you know, JP of- will say that to you too, though. Yeah, they, yeah, <laughs> you know. Let's not to get too excited about JP. You got, got a lot it. of grass. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. You got a lot of grass. That's about it. We got people. Like, I can eat a different ethnic food in Dorchester every day of the week. 
all meals. I can go I'm to not a different in a Dorchester argument with you, okay? I'm just saying, I'm just letting the world know. Dorchester, the God is beautiful, okay? I just came from Epiphany School. It is a See? beautiful place. Uh, but I, you know, like as a Southender who is now becoming a Roxburyan, I gotta do the Boston thing and plant my flags, you know, and be like, yeah, I love Dorchester, it's gorgeous. JP is gorgeous, you know, but I just must say, you know, Chinatown, South End, Roxbury Corridor thing is, you know, it's, it's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's quite delightful. <laughs> but if you want a place where you actually got some space to turn around, you go to Dorchester, you want a beautiful, you like lovely, beautiful home, but still feel like you're in the city and you could still move around, you go to Dorchester. Listen, do y'all got tropical foods though? <laughs> okay, well, let's actually. Do y'all have a Black-owned grocery store? Because we just got a Black-owned grocery store. I mean, if you count in every neighborhood bodega, yeah, we no, got all, all of we, we have put a, them all together. We have a grocery store. Nope, we just got a market that just opened up in Nubia Square. Yes, I know about that spot. I actually need to go by and check it out. So, and all right, you got me on that. We got for now. Store. We got an art gallery. I'm just, you know. We got pro black. <laughs> yeah, but you know, all right, fine. You got that. We got, got new edition. <laughs> all right. But I listen. did it for the Mary, y'all. I did it for the Mary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so thank you very much. I'm glad for you representing Roxbury. I'm sure that all our Roxbury listeners will be so proud that you held up, held up the banner correctly. So now that we you're in we're into 2023 what do you have planned for your 2023 what's what's on the landscape coming up for you um i'm a beautiful resistance is celebrating black love this year mm -hmm. i mean we're celebrating black love at all times since our you know inception but mm -hmm. we have a very uh, strong focus we launched black history month uh with black love with a partnership with boston globe magazine and we've carried that on um are you actually Amari and Miriam's episode drops on Monday. So oh. their love stories coming out. We've had Robin Hermello, Portia and Crystal, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. the third and his wife. Um, and a, and a bunch of different other people that we just celebrated who love each other in Boston. Um, and this is kind of a teaser. Like this is a big sort of teaser series. It's not a proper season three. The proper season three comes out in June, right around Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say, like right now we've been doing romantic love, but when season three comes out, it's love period. It's like the love of sisterhood. Like we've got Rocks Film Fest and, you know, Allison and Lisa. We've got Stay Adams, Love of the Culture, Allison Feaster, Love of the Game, Celtics. So, I mean, we, we have a lot of stories coming out and we're still filming, but, you know, these will be very much rooted in love um agape love you know love that is transformative love that moves us I'm really um and embrace is part of this to be honest embrace kind of inspired me to uh I always kind of live in a joy with a beautiful resistance but uh as I started to look at embrace coming together it made me think of 
what it would look like to really push a full season where we are building messaging around love and what it is to embrace one another and how that shows up beyond romance. Um, so it's like right now we're in the romance, but when season three comes out, it will be more of a uh, holistic and universal look at how love affects us, moves us, and allows us to dream freely. Okay. So that's kind of my 2023. And I haven't really made any big public announcements, but um, like six months ago, I joined the masthead at the Boston Globe. So I'm the second Black woman to ever be on our newsroom masthead. So I'm the senior assistant managing editor of talent, culture, and development. So a lot of my 2023 is building um, sort of institutional structures to help push the globe forward. And I can't do that alone. I can't do it overnight, but we are definitely in the throes of making some really important changes. Um, we've got this great fellowship program that we are in the middle of. It's We're like six months into it uh, with Julian Saraparu. Sur sorry, Juju. Um, he uh, is our first fellow and we have a two-year fellowship program basically dedicated to bringing in young journalists of color. Um, the pay is phenomenal and he gets to rotate throughout the company. So not just in the newsroom, also on the business side. Uh, I am sure you've seen his byline. He, I'm very proud of him. I'm proud for him to be my direct report, but also proud of him to be my mentee and just to be a colleague. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to that, we're building some partnerships with HBCUs, like my dear Norfolk State University, and uh, working on writing. Right now, I'm in the middle of doing the very tedious work of grant proposal writing because I want to get money to help create a HBCU housing stipend so that we can kind of release some of those barriers that keep HBCU students like I was from applying to internships because even when the pay is good, you just can't afford to move and pay for rent in places like Boston. So I'm I'm trying to write a grant proposal to get some funding for that and to get some funding for a beautiful resistance because I, like I said, I hire young people from the community and I want to be able to pay them, you know, proper money to to film. And there's other things we don't have. Like I could probably use a social media intern and things like that. So mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of grant proposal writing to figure out some things and um build some partnerships that will allow us to be a better us as the Boston Club. Well, first of all, let's say congratulations on this newest historic role that you are just <laughs> that you're stepping into. This is beautiful. And I couldn't think of a better person to be in that place. And I appreciate you so much for Thank being you. the storyteller we need. Thank you. Yeah, so you so might see my, you, well, I don't want to say my, over the last seven to eight months, you've seen my byline less, but that is why it's because I've been doing some um, groundwork to help push some institutional changes and build some new processes. And it doesn't mean I'm not writing, I'm still writing. I'm just kind of finding my balance right now. Finding my, actually, I don't like the word balance. I'm finding my harmony, finding my rhythm. Okay. Well then next time when we talk, um, we definitely have to talk, we're definitely gonna get back into your music roots and really kind of talk about current event music stuff which we all, I feel like you and I eventually do that every time we run into it. Like, what we do, we always talk about music. Who are you listening to right now? Oh, well, listen, you know what? I recently went into a 90s R&B wormhole. So like, I blame Silk. I blame Real P, Silk, and Baby in the Glow. 
Yeah, it, well, it's not just their fault. It's just like I've been, it was something that was just kind of missing in a lot of the R&B that I was hearing today. Like, I was like, I want, like, it's like so there's R&B artists today who are singing like, I'm going to take your girl or whatever. Like, listen, I want to hear that from you. I want to hear, I want to hear, like, one of the reasons I love New Edition as, as a, um, as a youngster and loving them still to this day is I felt like they were cool enough that you would want to be like them and they were giving you some, they were saying stuff that, that was reflective of you as a guy. So when you think of Can You Stay in the Rain, to me, that's like the ultimate R&B male song because it is wondering, yo, is this woman going to stand by me when things are rough and things are not smooth? Because it, it is, it is. I put it on the Black Love playlist that we have for ABR. Like, can you stand the rain is on there? And also, I just want to. This isn't the same type of love song, but I do want to mm. give a, a shout out to New Edition if it isn't love because that video oh, yeah. still goes right now. You could put that video on right now and it still goes. Like it's, I don't know. I just love it. I love, I love the, well, you ever hear the story, if you hear Brooke Payne talks about, remember, you know, the drum roll that comes in it, the drum yeah. roll that's in there is because Brooke Payne said that when he was, when he was talking to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, when they did the song, when they first played it for him, it didn't have that. It's like, yo, you have to give me something to put the choreography to. So ah. they put the drum roll in it so that they could have those, every, all the stuff that you see in the video was built around the dancing. The dancing, I love that video. Um that whole album, that whole album and the layout of the, the rollout of those records was genius for who they were. Was that Home time. Again? Yes. So the first one is you hear Ralph's voice. It's the lead single. So you know it's yeah. New Edition. Then the second one was You're Not My Kind of Girl, which is the first oh, yeah. time you really hear Johnny in the background. And you hear this really grown voice that just flies in out of nowhere. And then by the time you get to Can You Stay in the Rain, it's almost like you've gone on this journey of them getting to the point where Johnny's mature voice can represent them. And so yeah, where he becomes kind of seamlessly part of the group. Exactly. Um, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of toxic R&B and, <laughs> and judging myself for it. Like, it's like I'm listening to it, but I'm also like, why? maybe this is why you single. Like, why are you... <laughs> like, why are you listening to all this Brent Fayez and SZA? Like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. Why? What? What? Why is this your messaging right now, Janae? Um, but at the same time, I went and revisited Brandy um, "Never Say Never" album. Ooh, so, yeah, record. I, I, I mean, one, she is the vocal bible, but that album is just—it's so tender and pretty. Like, it mm -hmm. actually is a pretty album. Um, so listening to that and, um, listening to old Kendrick, um, mm -hmm. not section eight old, but kind of like, you know, swimming pools old and, mm -hmm. and, um, sing about me old type Kendrick. Um, and then I also have been revisiting, um, reasonable doubt, uh, just because, mm -hmm. I, I saw some argument on Twitter about Jay-Z's relevance. And I just kind of was like, why do y'all keep having this argument? Like, they first keep of having all, an argument because they weren't there. They did not like, see it in real life. But also Beyonce, Beyonce, who I love, do not come after me, Beehive. Mm -hmm. She did not make the first visual album. Jay-Z did. And it's like, 
everyone gives her that recognition. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, her husband did. He made the first visual album and it was phenomenal. It was like amazing. None of us had ever seen anything like it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it was like it owned the nineties. It was like, yes. Listen, so like I made a whole movie for his, he was the first person to do that. And I don't like that. Like we continuously don't talk about it. I'm like, why aren't we talking about the fact that Rockefeller and Jay-Z literally made a visual album that was like the most, if people like BMF and learning the story of BMF, Mm -hmm. both fictional and non-fictional, how could you not go back and look at like in my lifetime and all that, like just every that whole trip, like just the other gen- the other genius of that of that album and those records was also that it was in the transition of when they came back with the second album, and the second album was their attempt to kind of be more puffy like and kind of follow that vibe, and they were like, "Nah, we got to go back to being us," and that was the album that got them to Hard Knock Life. That that those, yeah. those that music and that that film and all that those were the things that got them back to hard knock life. That was like, okay, wait a minute. The, they took the best parts of of the of his second album, made that movie, and that's what got them that kept them alive long enough to get to get to the greatness that into the crossover to get to yes. the crossover point. Well, but on I, their terms, so yeah, totally on their terms. And I I don't know, I just that era is always going to speak to me. So when I'm getting certain moods and then something that people don't know about me is I'm like a, a, a huge, huge Kurt Cobain fan. So really, you know, yeah, there's some days when I'm just listening to Nirvana and in my little, you know, bubble writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that we overlook the relationship between um nirvana and kind of that emo scene has if there's a very overlap of like hip-hop punk goth that i think has probably led the way for what we see today and led the way for like it's why kid cuddy pays so much homage to kurt cobain often mm-hmm. but it's like there's definitely a relationship there that we don't talk about um that i just love so yeah i think that it's it's interesting when you talk about those pieces because it those links, the kids who listen to things in both those worlds and kind of didn't have that parochial view of like, oh, I've got to stay in this lane. Those are folks that kind of broke out and were the foundation of kind of all that blog era stuff that we started yeah. hearing. So that like it was like so when you say Kid Cudi, it just makes me think about that. I know, I know for me personally, the thing I've been listening when you talk about the hip hop side of things, I didn't realize how much I missed listening to De La Soul until it was re-released on streaming. And I feel like music, like for the last, since it's come out, I've listened to it. I listened to them every day. Well, you know, what's weird. I knew how much I missed like me, myself and I, Three Feet High mm-hmm. and Rising, like that era, because that's such an era when you think of Native Tongues and Tripod Quest and, yep. and, and Leaders of the New School. Like, what I didn't realize is how much I missed the De La Soul of the 2000s. Mm. It's like, in my mind, I had the, I so, I so missed that specific Native Tongues era of the like late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. that I totally kind of forgot shopping bags and like that whole album and how just amazing it was because I was so romanticizing like this era that sort of 
shaped my aesthetic. And I was just like, oh God, I forgot how I just kind of, I think we get so caught up in the 2000s, uh, the jigginess of the 2000s and the also like the little Wayne-ness and the Nelliness. There was just so much happening in the 2000s that I feel like some of our like 80s foundational pioneering artists who released albums in the 2000s, we forget, like we forget that like one of the Roots best albums came out in the 2000s and, you know, De La Soul had like this really great sort of renaissance in the 2000s. And I think their music being re-released kind of reminded me like, hold up, the way we frame the 2000s has kind of erased some of these moments. Uh, yeah, because so. we're not we're not thinking about those, like the pieces, like that Balloon Mind State album, I feel like I was had that on a, when it came out, I had it on a loop. Like I, I well, and- and things fall apart. And um, yes. it's just, there's there were some moments, I think, from some of our, our older school artists that happened in the 2000s that were very important that I just feel like it's easy to let them get lost when we talk about some of the empires that rose in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because those things were so big, it was hard to kind of see around them. All right, yeah. listen, we, we can do a whole bunch of nerdy. Yeah, yeah. We, can we can do a whole music we're, thing. Do a whole music thing. We're definitely going to do that, and I'm I'm definitely going to have you back. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I appreciate Thank you. you. Good luck editing this mammoth. <laughs> uh, luckily, that is not my job. That is DJ Teddy Ted. That's going to be his job. Shout out and- to you, DJ Teddy Ted. Um, <laughs> Greg, so- what's your... What makes your life a beautiful resistance, though? What makes my life a beautiful resistance? Uh, I will say that for me right now, I am getting back into my artistic energy. And I think that um, understanding my purpose in not only lifting myself up as an artist, but also facilitating and lifting up other people as artists is kind of my beautiful resistance. My my goal um has always been but even more so than ever has been to lift up great artists and great art because I know the connection that it it has for people the friends that I had the the deep relationships that I've had I've all really been around the arts the the arts have been the catalyst so that for me is going to be you know the 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 start the first shot in my my uh, beautiful resistance I love that so, thank you. Thank I like how you snuck in an interview question of your own at the end. That's good. Uh, you're you know, professional. I had, to, I had to, you know, just a little bit. Just a little you are professional. Bit. You're good at what you do. <laughs> I can't front on you. So listen, thank you so much. And ladies and gentlemen, this has been um, the one of my favorite episodes of the podcast. I, I probably say that every episode. But I must say, you probably good. say that to every single person. I do not. Oh, I don't say it to everybody, but I will say that this is symbolic of the fact that the podcast keeps getting better and better because we get better and better guests. So the guests make it, and this has been a great conversation, and we will have another one. We will dig into the deep uh, of nerdy recesses of our music minds. I'll probably bring <laughs> Dart on as well. I'll see if I can get Candace. To come if, on and be a part of it. Listen, nerd if you out. bring in Candace and Dart, you just let them have a show. I will just hush up because no, 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 Candace, no, no. Candace is like, I love her so much and I love Dart so much. Like I, they are just, shout out to Candace and Dart, like yeah. honestly. 
So Yo, miss, I, I definitely miss 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 McDuffie being in the town, but I can't. Yeah, I do really... miss, miss Miss McDuffie being in the town, but I love seeing her on TV. Um, yes, I, I love watching her shine. It yes. is it, it is quite a joy. Um, so. So thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. We will see you again on the next episode of uh, Good Trouble. And you all make sure you get into some good trouble between now and the next time I talk to you. Amen. Let's be good troublemakers. <laughs>